Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. Hey pals, welcome back to another episode of the Water Women Podcast. I am so happy that you guys are here joining me for another episode. The past few weeks of my life have been absolutely hectic. But I am so excited because within those hectic weeks, I managed to sit down with Dr. Beck Wellard, which is absolutely mind-blowing to me. I think she's so cool, and I have thought that for a very long time. And I reached out to her in the very beginning stages of the podcast with big hopes. And we it took us almost a year, but we finally nailed down a time for her to come on and talk about all the amazing things she does. And I, we all know that I love recording episodes where we talk about whales because I love whales. And so it's always fun to talk to another cetacean lover, which is what this episode is. So Dr. Wellard researches orcas off the coast of Australia and how she does it and what she actually looks at is so incredibly cool. And I'm, and I'm so stoked for you guys to get to learn about it too. Make sure you are following along on all of our social medias and make sure to check out uh, Dr. Beck Wellard's social medias as well at her projects. You will hear all about what she has going at the end of the episode. So stay all the way to the end and find out where you can find her on social media. It's lovely to talk to another marine mammal enthusiast. <laughs> oh, I cannot wait. I'm so happy I finally nailed you down and got you on here. Yes, let's hear the like from the beginning what brought you to where you are now. What made you want to do it what how did you find it like what was your path like I guess like everyone else the journey for me was it was a different one everyone has their own journey but for me it never really started out wanting to focus on orcas which I know a lot of orca enthusiasts out there would cringe at because it's a lifelong dream for many people but (laughs) I just started out studying animals so from a young age I've had a never-ending fascination with animals and my poor mum would find lots of different animals tucked away in my bedroom so I'd have the neighbor's cats I would have the neighbor's rabbits I even actually had pet (laughs) snails for a while so we had pet snails living under our bed oh my gosh my my poor mum so (laughs) never your poor neighbor We had our own cat. (laughs) We had our own cat. I would just continue stealing everyone else's. (laughs) Oh my gosh. gosh. That's hilarious. I would only borrow it temporarily. (laughs) You were planning on giving it back. It's fine. You'll get it back after I get enough cuddles. So I I always knew I wanted to work with animals. And it's funny, we grew up in a household full of animals and my two other sisters have gone on to become a vet and a wildlife carer. So clearly it's ingrained in us. Yeah, yeah. So I guess my love of animals and then my love of the ocean kind of combined and has led me to where I am. So I grew up on the shores of Port Phillip Bay in Melbourne and I would spend my days either exploring our local beach or going to the rock pools or sitting in my dad's boat for the whole day. And I found out that was my happy place. So I guess yeah. putting those two together, uh, animals and the ocean, it, it was a writing on the wall that I would end up working with marine mammals. <laughs> just kind of made sense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, just makes sense. So 
So I guess I did my undergraduate, uh, I actually did it in zoology and marine biology because I wanted to learn, yeah, I was really fascinated more with animal behaviour um, across all animal species. Uh, so I did that and then I worked with some terrestrial animals for a while and it's really funny uh, the way I got into my love and kind of research area of bioacoustics so animal communication was actually through birds <laughs> so I studied black swan acoustics and I did um, a study on their duetting and from then, I was just hooked. I just wanted to be Dr. Doolittle and I wanted to understand how <laughs> they communicate. So from there, I went and did my honours and I looked at a uh, study on the bottlenose dolphins in Victoria and how boat noise might impact them. And uh, you may have heard, because you've been studying on the east coast of Australia, that these this species of tersiops uh, of dolphins in Victoria is actually defined as a new species now. So they're called the Burrinan dolphins. So that was really cool to work with them. And I'm I'm still publishing one of my papers from that, gosh, nearly 20 years on. Absolutely disgraceful. Oh, wow. <laughs> I've been busy. <laughs> I love it. I've had other things. Give me time. Oh, absolutely disgraceful. Um, so yeah, look, I, I did that. And then from there, it was, yeah, I just traveled the world kind of volunteering and working and doing internships and then getting jobs from the internships, all doing cetacean research, uh, focusing on not just acoustics though. So helping along other projects with genetics and kind of population studies, uh, looking at, you know, different things throughout different species all over the world. So kind of went through humpbacks of course from Australia so yeah we've got you know the largest breeding population of humpback whales here in western Australia and then the east coast is booming as well and then we did lots of work on sperm whales and blue whales and uh yeah I did that for I don't know about 10 years as well as consulting on the side and I said I would never go back to academia and I would never be silly <laughs> enough to do a PhD. <laughs> and then <laughs> and then I just I, I just wanted a challenge. It um yeah, it got really awesome working on other people's projects and, and you know, working as a research assistant with many different labs, but I, I wanted a little piece of my own and I wanted to really hone in and focus on a topic that and delve into it that was kind of my topic. So I actually was about to start a PhD on humpback whale song. <laughs> oh, no um, way. Yeah. Yeah. And I was this close and then I decided, no, um, I want to do something different. <laughs> I <laughs> It would have been working with a lab that studies humpback song prolifically. They've done it for, yeah, 10, 20 years. And I, I just didn't want to piggyback on a project that, you know, yeah. other people had already done. So I went on the search and uh, I don't know if you know the story of the killer whales out of Bremer Bay in Western Australia and how it all kind of came to be. But there was talk, gosh, it would have been, what year are we, 2021? So nearly 10 years ago that there was this fishery scientist and this fisherman that were saying there's these killer whales in this offshore area of Western Australia and we see them there every summer in huge numbers and we don't have 
before that, we didn't have any site in Australia that you could reliably see these killer whales or killer whales in Australia. They've been seen in every state and territory waters, so all around Australia, but nowhere that was reliable. And I think everyone had heard this and everyone was like, no, no, it can't be real. We haven't got, you know, reliable killer whales here in Australia. And so we went and I went and checked it out um, and I was just like, wow, I think the first day we had... I think 30 killer whales and they took down a beaked whale on like one of my first days and then for the like the remaining few weeks that I was out there kind of doing a recon mission I was like this is unique and this is something that we haven't seen before in Australia and I really think I could use this field site as kind of the baseline for a PhD project and that was it. I was like, nobody's done a doctorate on killer whales in Australia before. And to this day, nobody has. Uh, it's still a really new field of kind of species to study because we don't find them reliably anywhere else in Australia. And really? uh, no, no. So, and so I wrote proposals and uh, finally found a good supervisor and a good lab that I knew would be a good fit because that's really important before you decide to take on a doctorate because it's going to be the best time of your life and the hardest time of your life. <laughs> <laughs> the best and the worst at the same time. It's That's exactly it. And it's a marathon, not a sprint. It, it takes such a long time and you need so much support around you. So you really need the right fit. And I just, I found the most incredible supervisor and lab. So I, I pushed my proposal towards them. And, and like we were saying before, persistence pays off. And <laughs> I was like, we can make this happen. This is going to work. This is my plan. And yeah, gosh, a few, a few too many years down the track. And I, I finally finished it a couple of years ago. And yeah, it was definitely one of the best projects I've ever undertaken for sure. And it's led me to where I am now. So yeah, gosh, that was my life story in a nutshell, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So I kind of want to dive a bit more. I think it's so cool that you like were like, I love animals, have all these animals, but like there's always that like pull to the ocean. And I think it's yeah. so cool that you uh, ended up here. I wanted to dive into the acoustics a little bit more, especially like the black swan stuff. You mentioned <laughs> duetting. So like, what is duetting and what were you studying with the black swans that made bioacoustics so appealing to you? So it's all a, a lot about animal communication for me and... I think, yeah, look, the black swan study, uh, the field work was incredible because I just remember going to record these black swans duetting. So it's called vocal duetting and a lot of different bird species do it. And uh, But to record it, black swans are really nasty. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've seen black swans in Queensland and in Brisbane, but my God, these things would chase me across like the lake area with their nasty beaks, like just chasing me, trying to bite me. And I'm like, I'm just trying to record you. Uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> So, uh, so duetting, so it's like a coordination uh, between uh, paired birds, so male and female, and they kind of sing to each other to kind of build that partnership. Um, it, we think it serves like multiple functions, so maintaining the territory, maintaining that partnership between the duetting, and you'll see like, you know, one male will start and then the female will go off and then they'll kind of move closer together and then keep duetting and making this beautiful sound. So a lot of birds already do it. 
uh, and the black swans, yeah, they, they just have this most beautiful partnership and, yeah, the duetting through there. And I was, yeah, I think I was just super interested in, yeah, communicating and what are they saying and how amazing is this that you can match their behaviour with what they're saying. So cool. it was a natural progression for me, yeah, to go into, yeah. well, one of the most complex acoustics of species on the planet, so cetaceans. Um, so for, I guess for bioacoustics and cetaceans, we're talking about, you know, cetaceans in the ocean and the ocean is far from quiet. So every time I lower my hydrophone down into the ocean, there's always something to listen to, whether it's going to be the sounds that the ocean makes like waves or sounds that man's makes so like ship noise or seismic or just many other animals in the sea. So many animals produce sound. So from the tiniest shrimp to, you know, the biggest whales and Gosh, I only learned maybe five, six years ago that fish actually like have choruses and they sing in these beautiful choruses at sunset. What? Who, yeah, who knew fish were so complex that they could have these beautiful choruses? So it's just the, oh the my sound. Goodness. It's incredible. The ocean just the sounds fascinate me. And I guess when we're sitting on a boat or on the beach, essentially that that sound is trapped. Like we we can't hear it if we're above water and once you put a hydrophone down there and you just listen, it, it's a whole other world. So especially with marine mammals. So, you know, the ocean's deep and light can only penetrate so far below the surface. So the, this means that, you know, all marine mammals are essentially living in an environment where they can't rely on their eyesight. That's not their main form of communication. So they've evolved to see with sound and they use acoustics for navigating, for detecting predators and searching for prey and communicating with other members of their their pod or their family group. So they they use sound as their way to communicate. So it was just, yeah, perfect field for me that's just continuously fascinated me now. And, yeah, I haven't, oh gosh, what is it, 2021? So, yeah, nearly 20 years I've been studying cetacean acoustics and I'm still not bored by it. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Cetacean acoustics are so complex that we can study them for this long and still kind of be like, what are you saying? What, like, what's going on? We have kind of an idea of how they use them, but like, I want to be able to understand a sentence in cetacean someday. Like bioacoustics has always fascinated me and I'm blown away by it. And I want to just to be able to like speak whale, you know? <laughs> yeah. Be the Dr. Doolittle of the sea. I don't know exactly. if we'll ever understand them essentially I don't know if they no. really speak in a language that we do but the best we can do is assign behaviors that we can note down and relate that to what they're kind of exhibiting in, in their vocal behavior at that same time I think that's almost as far as we can come I know there's a few other kind of people trying to decode their language and yeah it, it's a complex thing to decode and I think there holds a lot of bias and anthropomorphism if we try to do that but absolutely yeah. kind of the danger of like putting this is what I think it means so this is what it means onto it there exactly yeah beautifully worded by you exactly So it is springtime and I don't know about you, but when spring hits around here and the sun starts shining and it starts getting a little warm out, I am in the mood to clean. 
Now, I've always been one to just go buy my cleaning supplies at the store, grabbing like when I grab groceries or something, and I tend to grab whatever is the cheapest that will do the job. But it's always weighed heavily on my mind, like, man, this is so much single-use plastic. Come on, like, do better. But there's never any great alternatives. So when I was scrolling on TikTok one day and I saw It's a Vibe shop, I was so excited. With It's a Vibe, you get to save on plastic and money. These cleaning products are plastic-free, affordable, and so easy to use. They come in these little tablets that you drop into some water. I used an old Windex bottle that I was going to throw out, but it got a second chance at life. You drop it in, you shake it up, and let it dissolve a little bit, and boom, cleaning product. You can get a glass cleaner, a foaming hand soap, a bathroom cleaner, and an all-purpose cleaner. A pack of three of one of these costs $9, and the starter kit that contains all four cleaners is available for just $12. And as if that already isn't amazing, Water Women listeners get to save 20% on their purchases when they use the code WATERWOMEN. You can check out Issa Vibe at Issa Vibe Shop. That's I-S-A-V-I-B-E-Shop.com. And don't forget to use code WATERWOMEN when you purchase some products for 20% off. Now, 20 years studying this has been, that's wild. That's amazing. <laughs> what, like, what has the past, past 20 years entailed for you? Like, what have you been looking at? What has been, like, kind of the coolest things you've gotten to do? Or, like, what has been the thing that's kept you really going by in it? My gosh, I, I couldn't tell you the top things <laughs> and experiences because every day out on the water you just never know what you're going to see that's one of the joys of working out in nature and working on the ocean is you the the ocean is so wide and diverse with species that if you're not all areas are like that but if you're going to a well-known area that has a huge diverse diversity of life that, that you just never know every day what you're going to see so for me Oh, gosh, a few highlights would be my Antarctic trips. I've been to Antarctica a couple of times for research and for work. Um, uh, working across different projects and working with incredible scientists is a huge highlight for me. I'm a big believer in collaborating, and I believe that science is done better, stronger together so I love working in different labs and with different groups yeah it's so much to learn from our peers and so much to experience together and to get different views and understanding of different methodologies I think it's uh, collaborating is just the best way forward for science so yeah a joy for me is definitely meeting new people and working with new people in new areas I love that (laughs) I think it's so important to kind of like have these collaborations and be able to like, I always heard networking. I've talked about this before on the podcast. Like you always get told like networking is so important. And when I picture networking, when I was younger, I was like, oh, it's like going to a party or a get together or like a function and being like, hi, I'm Jill. I do this. Passing your card to them. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it sounds so boring. And I was like, I don't want to do that. 
And then like, as I've kind of gotten into the field, realizing that networking can be like shooting someone a message on Instagram. That's like, Hey, I think what you do is super cool. I think you're super cool. And it's that easy. It's so cool. And it's so important. And it leads to a lot of opportunities to collaborate in your work or just in life in general. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, social media and the internet connection and the way we can reach people on the other side of the world has certainly changed things with that. But then even working with people and volunteering with them and then within that kind of volunteer project that you do or, or small work that you do, then you'll meet someone else in that group and then you've created another network or arm to another area. And just maintaining that communication and collaboration, it just the options are endless as, as to what I've found if you're positive and you work hard and you're open to collaboration yeah the world is your oyster <laughs> exactly now I kind of want to jump back into these bioacoustics see I told you we'd go on tangents it's just it's gonna happen <laughs> um the, so you were looking you said originally you kind of thought about studying like the humpback whale song and then decided you wanted to do something that hadn't been done so went with the orcas now those are two different like I know like humpback whales are like singing and like actually like producing a different sort of sound than the orcas do. So did you find like, what is your experience with that? Like with the different sounds, have you gotten to kind of, how can you differentiate if you just hear them kind of thing? Yeah. So actually a lot of my work I've been doing postdoctoral past my PhD is identifying different cetacean species through sound. So Obviously, like cool. you said, humpbacks are a baleen species, so they have a, a different kind of uh, vocalisation units in comparison to the killer whale, which is a dolphin. So the killer whales uh, are the largest dolphin, and dolphins uh, have three unique sounds that they use, so echolocation clicks, burst pole sounds, and whistles. And this is different to a baleen whale, essentially, like the humpback, what they were talking about, that sing in song. So as we know, the males sing a song, but the females and and the calves and the males also use little units as well for social sounds as well. And they're essentially different to the whistles and, and burst pole sounds. Uh, and one of my jobs that I've been doing now for the last yeah couple of years is identifying different species by their vocalisation. So... It's one of the best ways we can really study cetaceans in the ocean is you put a noise logger or you know, a recorder on the bottom of the seafloor. It's cost effective. It's non-invasive. And you just record the sounds of the ocean for, for many, many years. Many, many uh, months I go through that data. And uh, basically you can hear animals that are, are coming past or that are using the area. You know, a blue whale uh, sound is so low in frequency that the human ear can't hear it. We have to speed it up about four and a half times and a little bit more. Oh, no way. Yeah, that's kind of um, subsonic. So, But because it's such a low frequency, it travels across oceans. So Brian Miller published that this blue whale song was traveling over 500 kilometers across the ocean. Absolutely wow. incredible that we could hear a blue whale here that's in another part of the ocean. It just travels so far. So it's so easy to, there's a lot of baleen whales. They're really easy to identify and uh, distinguish between. So because we look at the different uh, frequency that they're emitting at and they've got different kind of structure in their sound units. So humpbacks are super easy to identify. Oh, my gosh, they don't shut up. Their song is just incredible. <laughs> they really don't. <laughs> they really don't. 
I was uh, trying to record the killer whales off the Ningaloo Reef as part of my doctorate with some loggers there to kind of see when they were coming in and when they were leaving because the, the winter animals of the Ningaloo, we don't see that frequently. And my gosh, all I had to listen to were these humpback whales that would not stop singing. I was just so sick of them. I just wanted them to be quiet so I could hear the killer whales. But yeah, I, I've di- I'm digressing again. <laughs> <laughs> So acoustics, yeah, it, it's a powerful tool and it allows us to look and study at multiple cetacean species. So you can differentiate back to your original question between humpback whales and, and killer whales. Cool. Is there, this might not be something that we know yet. I'm sure we have some information on it, but is it different in how it's physically produced? I know that like that's a hard one to answer because we can't actually like be with them when they produce it, but like it where it's a song like how does it differ in the way that it's actually produced so definitely for the dolphins uh the dolphins don't produce sound like us through our our larynx like through our our throat there they actually produce sound through their monkey lips so up uh into their structure in their head in their melon just behind their melon there through just underneath like where their blowhole and they that's how they deliver sound through their so that's different to how we think that the baleen whales produce sound, which is essentially kind of through the larynx, like us humans. Cool. So there, did you say they're monkey lips? Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I, any chance I get, what? I talk about the monkey lips. <laughs> Tell me more. I am amazed. <laughs> so it's called the monkey lips dorsa. Gosh, let me just remember it. Monkey lips dorsa. <laughs> dorsal bursa complex (laughs) and it's a structure and it has a pair of anterior and posterior dorsal bursae in which pair a pair of like phonic lips are embedded so if you imagine the dolphin skull so you've got uh, its rostrum there then you've got the fatty melon and you know the fatty melon is how they sound sends uh, make sound their echolocation through then behind that you've got their air sacs and then at the top you've got their blowhole and just down from their blowhole and, and behind their their air sacs um, are the monkey lips, the dorsal bursae complex. <laughs> cool. That is so monkey lips. cool. My, fav- my favourite terminology to pull yeah. out. <laughs> monkey lips. I love that. I cannot wait to use that forever. I will be finding some way to include that in everything I do from now on. I will be relating everything back to the monkey lips. Not not in your humpback whale study, unfortunately, but anything else you do mm. with delphinids, you can. <laughs> oh, I'll talk about it anyway. I'll just be like a casual sentence, like, as opposed to uh, the dolphins that use their monkey lips. Like, I'll just throw that in there because I think it's so cool. <laughs> I'm glad to have taught you a new terminology to throw around at the party. <laughs> I love that. There's so many, like, cetacean things that, like, just throw people off like I worked on a boat for a while where we would like talk about whales and I think my favorite one was talking about like earwax and how we can use the earwax to Mm. roughly determine the age and people are like wait 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 and I was like I know it's pretty cool we can do that right and they're like no (laughs) whales have earwax like what and it's just like they're such cool but weird animals I love them so much I love the fun facts that you can pull out and that people are just 
gobsmacked about, uh, like one of the ones I love pulling out is like whales used to walk on land and that's how, you know, they, they, they came from cows and hippos and just like stories like that that just blow people's minds that they just think that whales have always been in the water. But if you talk about evolution and evolutionary biology, I just I just love blowing people's minds with fun facts like that. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to have to use the earwax one again. I, I do like that one. <laughs> that one. That one's my like go-to because it's just so shocking like people are like what I didn't even know whales had ears I'm like listen they're so cool like let me tell you more and it's a great great (laughs) intro into them my other favorite one is do you know how important whale poop is and they're like no it's not important I'm like no 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 it's so important like it's that's one of my lectures I I give on the uh expeditions that I do down in Antarctica (gasps) just just talk about whale poop and it's funny you get them you get them no straight way. away, just like your earwax thing. As soon as you hook them from the start, they're yours for the entire lecture. <laughs> I love that. So actually, let's talk a little bit about the expeditions you do down in Antarctica. What is that and why are you doing so that? I, I've done them for multiple reasons. One of the best ones was a dedicated research voyage, just searching for uh, the type D orca, which we think may be a new species because it's just freaky looking. But I've done a lot of other expeditions to the sub-Antarctics and the other Antarctics for as either an expedition guide or lecturer on board, as so as the marine scientist. And that also allows me the chance to collect my data at the same time as well. I would actually be finishing up down there now if it wasn't for COVID, but oh well, so be it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so I think working on the expedition ships down south really presents a great opportunity for marine scientists to use these vessels as a platform to collect their data but not only to collect their data, but to also do some outreach and some science communication, which I clearly love doing. I I love talking to people and pulling (laughs) out fun facts, just like you said, and just getting people engaged and getting them excited because as soon as they care about something and they love something, they're, they're willing to protect it. And people power is strong. So if we have people caring for the ocean and for its inhabitants, then the more people that care, the more power that we have. Absolutely. I love that. The more people that we that care, we, the more power we have because it's so incredibly true. Like it is hard sometimes to not get emotional about it. Like it's just like you can be talking about the next couple of years of the future and like what's happening. And it's like, why, why are people not caring? Why are people not understanding this? And it's like, if you're not getting through to people, sometimes you just want to like shake them and be like, do you not see how important this is? And so I think at taking the time to reach out and explain things to people in a way that's going to help them understand is so important. I've never had to shake people, but I I appreciate your enthusiasm. (laughs) Not me either. I've I've avoided it this far. I will, I continue to try to avoid it. You know, people push me sometimes. You never know. So you mentioned different species of orca or different species of killer whale. Like how many different species are there? I think it's so cool how you can kind of identify them and like they have like different, like there's like the killer whale, but then different like sub subgroups. So the killer whales, they're actually considered one single species, but there are different populations of killer whales that have been categorized into distinct mm. ecotypes. And that's based on differences in their morphology their behaviour, their diet, their genetic structure and acoustic repertoire. So 
currently the single species uh, genus and species name is Orsinus orca. So orca being the species, but I think it's certainly a watch this space as geneticists are continuing to evolve their analysis and technology and continuing to argue how to separate orca into subspecies or even potential new species. So I don't think, look, I'm not a geneticist, but I have, you know, worked alongside them. I, I think it's certainly something that's still open for discussion. But at this point in time, killer whales or, or orca are still considered a single species, but very diverse across different areas of the world. And I'm happy to talk about ecotypes if that's what you're interested in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I would love to hear more because I know in Canada, on the East Coast, we don't have too many, like, it's not a super common species, but I know on the West Coast, it's huge. And there's different groups, like there's like the J, the L, <clears throat> excuse me, like there's different groups and different populations just on that area. So I'm sure like all over the world, like I'd love to hear about the ecotypes. So currently there's 10 known ecotypes around the world. Uh, on your West Coast for you in Canada, so you've got the residents, uh, so you're referring to them, the JK and LPOD, and they're traditionally your fish eaters that you would would know. And I think then the name residents isn't the true name for their distribution and behaviour because they are they do move off <laughs> and they're not as resident as they you know originally thought they were. Then you have the transients, which are now called the bigs, and they're your mammal eaters uh, that, uh, yeah, that, that are known. And they're actually with the southern residents, which you are the only endangered population of killer whales in the world, with oh, them no. slowly, yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're slowly disappearing essentially. And they're, they're, they were the frequent ones that tourist boats and researchers used to see in that, in that region in the Pacific Northwest. But as time has gone on and their population starts to diminish, they they're seeing less and less of the residents and they're seeing more and more of the bigs or the transients now. So that's uh, another ecotype there. And uh, they have the offshore ones. So they have uh, across the three different geographical regions with these ecotypes you can consider. So the North Pacific that I've talked about, mm -hmm. you've got the North Atlantic and then you've also got Antarctica. So Antarctica has five ecotypes now so sorry there's three north pacific and you've got five uh antarctic and then you've got the two uh north atlantic so the yeah. five antarctic ones uh, are what you've probably heard of type a type b1 type b2 c and d have you heard of them before yeah yeah, yeah. so you've got those five types down there and our voyage was essentially to look for the type d Orca. I'm not sure if you've heard the story of the type Ds, but no. it is one of the most fascinating stories. Oh and goodness. the fact that we still don't know much about the type D orca really shows to us how little we know about the ocean and the inhabitants that are in it. And if we're still trying to figure out if this orca is a new species or not and try get some samples from it really to me shows me that it could be the largest undiscovered large species, new species in the ocean that we've had in many, many years. So the type D orca 
oh, it's, a, it's a wonderful story. Oh, so I'll take you to New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take you to uh, New Zealand. So in 1955, 17 orca stranded on uh, the beach there on the South Island. And these orca that stranded were so strange looking. They looked like mutants. They had a round, bulbous head. They had hardly any eye patch. Their dorsal was really thin and falcate, completely different to other killer whales that had been seen around the world. So they kind of said, oh, okay, it must be just a a genetic variation of this group and and kind of fobbed it off as potential, uh, just a mutant kind of strain of, of phenotypic characteristics. So... That was that. Fast forward 50 years and my colleague uh, Bob Pittman was at a conference and this French scientist has come up to him and said, I've got these photos. They're from the Crozet Islands, which is kind of also on, you know, it's sub-Antarctic kind of level, but it's on the other side of the world in comparison to New Zealand. And he said, these guys look really weird do can you just can you like help me out is there something going on with these and bob saw them and he straight away said those look like the killer whales that stranded on new zealand 50 years ago and he just knew straight away something was going on it was in the same kind of like line convergence so sub-antarctic waters but on the other side of the world so for the next would have been 2005 to 2011 so the next you know seven years Bob had been putting calls out to fishermen, to tourist boats, to anyone out on the water within this kind of sub-Antarctic water region, asking if you guys see any weird killer whales that looks that look strange, please send them into us. So over that time, I think he got about five, five sightings, five a handful of sightings from people, all sending in pictures of these weird-looking killer whale that had this strange bulbous head and tiny white eye patch. And he said, wow, these guys are actually all around the globe in those sub-Antarctic waters. So they were deemed the sub-Antarctic killer whale, the type D killer whale. Oh, my god! And that was 2011. Absolutely incredible. But yeah. for this whole time, no one's been able to get uh, a genetic sample from them. So it's been fishermen that have seen them and, and these, these orca, these type D orca, predate upon long-line tooth fisheries. So they hang around fishing vessels they've actually been shot at a few times because they do steal these fish from these mm. long liners and uh, the fishermen obviously lose a lot of money when they do that yeah. and the killer whales are incredibly intelligent so they they kind of wait till the fishermen are, are bringing their line up and uh, <laughs> just steal the fish off just right before the end and you know the line's done all the hard work for them so they just come up and get their free feed and yeah so you know, most of these sightings has been through fishermen or through people that have just opportunistically seen them in rough waters. So we were lucky enough to, well, Bob was lucky enough to get funding uh, for this trip of a lifetime for him. This is, you know, his trip of the, an aim that he'd always wanted to do. Gosh, this would have been two years ago now. And I was lucky enough, he could only take along five marine mammal scientists. And as I kind of specialise in killer whale acoustics, he he picked me to join him. And it was and a trip of a lifetime. So we we rocked up to Argentina and Ushuaia and going out into the roughest part of the world. So there were these Chilean fishermen uh, that fish off the shelf out there in, off Cape Horn. 
a lot of people who love the ocean may have heard of Cape Horn before. If you haven't, it's possibly the roughest ocean in the goddamn world. It is horrendous. <laughs> no. Oh no. It's it's known to be one of the most treacherous parts of the ocean. And that's exactly where the killer whales were. So <laughs> we went out in this uh, pretty small yacht, I'm going to say, because she had sails. Uh, she had a, her engine was an old train engine. So she, she, was, she was sturdy, but she was little. And we went out in, in her uh, searching for these killer whales uh, off Chile. And we were out there for a, a couple of weeks and we were just getting bashed around by this weather. Uh, day in day out to the point that we had to go run and hide in the archipelago and just wait it out and it was like 60 70 knot winds gusting past us and we had to um hightail it down to the antarctic peninsula because we had the rest of the crew waiting for us so after two and a half weeks we were just like we we didn't find them all we wanted was to get was a genetic sample to see if these guys were a new species and we're all pretty defeated so all right we'll go through the drake passage get down to the peninsula and, and you know then our, our job's kind of, we have to give up on it. But we'll go through the site just on our way down on the off chance. And so we punched out in like 40 knot winds and like three metre swell throughout the night. And I remember waking up to the morning to people screaming down from the bridge going, type D, type D. So like I run up in my PJs and we were surrounded by this type D killer whale that we'd been searching for weeks on end. And all of a sudden the sun came up and they just popped up right next to us. So can imagine the whole boat everyone was screaming with excitement and you know it's lucky enough that you get to see a killer whale but when you get a group of killer whales that are super friendly so we call them friendlies you're super lucky so we had friendlies and they wouldn't leave our boat alone so we had them for about four or five hours that whole day and we got genetic samples we got um, photo identification so we could try match them we got underwater photography of them it was absolutely incredible and oh, uh, that's the story of the Type D, the, the is... genetics that are in the lab. <laughs> and so it's a watch this space to see how different it is to the other uh, killer whales so around cool. the world. <laughs> is there different ways you can get a genetic sample or is it just like one specific way? No, uh, so the, there's a few different ways through different um, marine species. So with cetaceans, uh, I've used a, a variety of them. So you can use a modified rifle. And you can uh, essentially you have a lot of pressure, whether you use a modified rifle or a crossbow and you shoot out a dart that has like just the tip of a pencil on the end and it will bounce onto the skin and bounce off. And within that little tip of the dart, it's, yeah, it's honestly the size of a little pencil eraser is enough skin and blubber that we can take from that looking at their DNA. So the genetics, we can also look at diet. So isotopes and fatty acid analysis so you get a myriad of information from this tiny sample and a lot of the time the animals don't react uh we found that the male orcas are a lot more sensitive than the females they'll sometimes (laughs) kind of give their little tail a swish at the end but it's it's not more than a mozzie bite for them because they've got such thick blubber and skin so yeah you, you shoot through your crossbow or your rifle and then the dart bounces off and then just floats on the surface and you turn the boat around and get your net and scoop it up cool that is so cool you can actually use for humpbacks because i know you're studying humpbacks or you love humpbacks and you're studying so you can actually 
one of our field sites off Ningaloo, so humpbacks obviously breach a lot and they're big animals. So every time they breach, they leave a lot of skin, skin behind, floating yeah. in the water. Yeah, so we sometimes just scoop that up and uh, we get a lot of, yeah, analysis from that as well. So that makes it a lot easier. Just got to wait for a, a breaching humpy. Yeah, which happens. It amazed me when I was down there. I would go out uh, and look at, like, on the boats and everything and look at the humpbacks. And I remember they breached so much down there. It was a really cool experience for me because, like, here they're feeding. So I get to see a lot of the feeding things. But there they're migrating so I still get to see some more of the behaviors and I remember we went out one day and we were coming back in and I was just sitting there like in disbelief and the guy was like oh man like we only saw one guy like breach 52 times today like that wasn't he wasn't busy and I was like <laughs> only 52 I see a breach once a summer if I'm lucky what do you mean only 52 like it just amazed me so like you know waiting for a little humpy to breach isn't isn't the uh, end of the world down there? Certainly isn't. Gosh, you you just have to dodge the humpbacks at sometimes <laughs> at the right season. You just and you hope that they breach because otherwise you might not see them if they're underneath. <laughs> exactly. No, that was what amazed me the most is like these humpbacks were just breaching and like coming up everywhere. And I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And then I remember talking <laughs> about this with like Sarah, who we mentioned, and she was like yeah, but you get to see them eat. And I was like, that's an everyday kind of thing. Like, who cares? And she's like, I've never seen that. Like, so it's kind oh, of Oh, no, the, the, the eating is cool, it's I so think. Cool. I really take it for granted. It is so like, cool. I have. Clearly. These, <laughs> I have these videos of there was a humpback whale that, like, was lunge feeding, like, right beside our boat. And I got this awesome video of, like, you can actually see, like, the throat grooves all expanded out and everything. And it is, mm. it really is the coolest thing. But, like, I see it all the time. So I'm like, oh, cool. It's super cool. But whatever. And then I see, like, these breachings. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, this is so cool. And, like, some <laughs> of the behaviors down there that I was seeing just blew me away. So it's really cool to see how they can differ in different areas of the world in different, like, stages of their, like, cycle like whether they're migrating feeding or breeding the different behaviors that they're showing is so cool definitely yeah it depends you know what mission they're on are they, are they there to breed then they're going to be super excitable and 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 you know socializing or are they there to feed then they're, they're too busy getting things into their gob gosh like, there's nothing better than seeing humpbacks bubble net feeding my <sighs> gosh that blew me away yeah that one I haven't been lucky enough to see yet but it is on my bucket list I oh I think I would simply pass out if I saw that yeah <laughs> well let's hope not because yeah <laughs> don't want them to swallow you up in their bubble net feeding <laughs> <laughs> that's another one of my favorite facts is like talking to people and they're, I'm like, do you think a whale could eat you? And they're like, well, yeah. And I'm like, well, no, you like they, you could be in their mouth, but like they couldn't swallow you. And that's just like, so cool. I love whales, man. They're oh. so cool. <laughs> I love your fun facts that you pull out to everyone. What a great way to engage. I really just, I have earned the nickname whale girl and it's gotten, you know, like, you know, when you're like into something a lot and all of a sudden all the gifts that you get start being that, that is me with whales. Oh, yeah. Like, just where I'm sitting right now, I can see a painting that my friend did for me of a whale, uh, an origami whale, and a cross-stitch of a whale that my friends gave me. So everything that I get now has to do with whales. 
Yeah, oh, it's so lovely at the start. Just uh, you'll get very sick of it very soon. Maybe you won't. I certainly am. <laughs> I'm already like my mom was talking. Mom, she was like, "Look at this! Like it's got a whale on it." And I was like, "I love it. Please do not get it for me." Like I, I <laughs> I'm all whaled out. <laughs> I have enough. It's getting to be a problem. It's weird at this point if I get any more whale things. <laughs> it's funny when I started studying killer whales, I was known as orca girl down in you know the towns where we were studying. But as I've as I've aged, I'm now known as the orca lady. So I don't know if I should take that as a compliment that I'm I'm more distinguished and more experienced, or if I've just gotten older. <laughs> <Stop>. <laughs> no, it's distinguished, a hundred percent distinguished. Definitely taking that one. Yep. <laughs> I love it. Tell me more about their family structure. Tell me about it. Because I think it's, I do know that they are a matriarchy, which is absolutely so cool to me. Girl power, you know? Yeah. So I just Exactly. I Girl power. I love yeah, that. Yeah, same. I think it's one of another, because you love your fun facts, <laughs> an amazing fact, which I'm sure you probably know, but one that you can pull out that hooks people is that orcas go through menopause. I actually and did not, not know many, that. Oh, brilliant. There we go. Add that to your, yeah. So, so orcas are pilot whales as well and, and humans and some primates. There's not many species that go through menopause. Essentially, once we've finished our reproductive cycle in, in animal kingdom, we're deemed, you know, un, unworthy for anything else. We've, we've done, we've passed on our genes, we're done. But animals such as us that have culture and pilot whales and killer whales, they go through menopause and they become grannies. So we're saying they live they have a society that's a matriarchal society and these grannies pass on the culture from generation to generation. So the society is matrilineal and it's the grandmothers, the mothers, the sisters and the daughters who live together for life, caring for each other and protecting their family. And family is critical to survival in, in killer whales. So... Usually, you know, both males and females have biological value for as long as they reproduce and then, you know, they die after we stop reproducing. But, you know, these matriarchs can live for 80 years or more and their expertise can mean the difference between life and death for their offspring. Wow. I always thought it was absolutely amazing that they would, like, stay with their grandmother or, like, stay with their family. Like, and it kind of raises some interesting questions about how do they manage to breed and I, like, I know they do it with like different, like I'm doing air quotes right now, like families, like, but it's so cool that they <laughs> stay together as a family. Like the, the sons will stay with their mothers kind of thing. I think that just absolutely blows my mind how much culture they have and how, no, I don't want to like anthropomorphize, but like how it's similar to our, our lives where like we have our families for our entire life. Yeah, definitely. If not, I think their family bods might be even stronger. You, oh, yeah. you touch on how do the males stay with their, you know, their family. Gosh, orca males are mummy's boys. So they stay <laughs> with their mum for the whole of her life. She continues to help to feed him as well, helps to, you know, get him to mate with other another killer whale in another group. And research has shown that if the mother dies, it's actually reduced lifespan of the offspring sons as well so they you know they, they don't live as long if their mother dies they're, they're complete mummy boys and it's so funny when people see killer whales you know the males are a lot bigger and they're, they're huge dorsal fin and they're, they're very striking to see and everyone thinks you know that's the males that are the strong ones that are ruling the roost but it's the females they run the show and as, as big and beautiful as the males are you know with their two meter dorsal fin it's 
it's granny that that's calling the shots and I think that's an incredible incredible thing and I just appreciate their their social structure and their family bonds so much more they're they're complex creatures it's mind-blowing honestly how complex they are and the like the relationships they have with each other like I know I think it was just last year uh, one of the populations out west there had been one of the calves die I was reading like this calf passed away and they returned like year after year to the spot like the mom carried it for a while and then they put it up onto a rock 17 days yeah and now they like come back year after year to return to the rock where they left it as almost like a funeral or memorial kind of thing and it's just like what like that's mind-blowing yeah isn't it incredible so elephants do that as well uh they go to the same site of the bones of a past family member on their migration and they stop there and they kind of stand around it and, and look at the bones and a kind of mourning or respect of visiting the dead. And, yeah, killer whales do that too. It's just it's just there's nothing that animals don't do that doesn't fascinate me and I think we underestimate them so much. And when you learn things about this, it blows our minds, but how much more do we not know? And I think, yeah, there's so much respect for for different animals and, oh, gosh, could go on and on, but I think it's also one of the most incredible things as well. Yeah, like every time we learn something new, or at least I learn something new, I'm like, cool, okay, cool, I know this now, but, like, what do I not know? Like, this has just raised more questions and it almost feels like as the more you learn, the more questions you have because you're like, wait, how does this (laughs) work? And they're just so complex and I love it. You've just signed off what everyone says in their PhD. When you start to answer these questions, you're like, oh, my God, there's a million more. <laughs> Great. So does that mean I like have You're a real PhD scientist now? now. Awesome. <laughs> I'm just going to tell people I have my PhD based on that. Like, done. I, I don't even have to do one now. I'm just going to drop a diploma. <laughs> but it's so true. Like, so, uh, you know, you come out of your undergraduate in marine biology and you think you know everything. And then you go and do your master's and you're like, oh, I really don't know much. Yeah. And then you do your PhD and you're like, I know nothing at all. <laughs> I was so cocky. The more you learn, the more you realize how we don't know. And I think when you, when you meet people who say they know everything, you're like, oh, do you really? Or you just, yeah, naive in that you think. Because once you learn more, you realize how little you really know. Yeah, absolutely. It and being able to admit that you don't know everything, I think, is a big step. And being able to be like, you know what, I have a lot to learn, even though you're considered almost like a expert in your field. Being able to be like, I don't know yep. everything is huge. And I think that's humbling, and I think that's what makes a great scientist. Abs, I a hundred percent agree. I think it is kind of the fine line between a fantastic scientist who is fantastic with communication and one that is. We've all come across them, the scientist that is, I am smart, I know what I'm doing, I am a scientist, and I, I'm the best scientist <laughs> kind of thing. I know everything. What can you teach me? It's exactly. a terrible attitude to have. And and sadly, academia has that, you know, all the way through uh, up to the top. But this young generation that we're pushing through, I think, is really refreshing, and, and you don't have that attitude or see that attitude much anymore. Absolutely. Well, I think we have covered everything now <laughs> and it has <laughs> it has been amazing getting to sit down to talk to you today about whales and I've learned so much. Like, thank you so, so much for joining me today. It has been incredible. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure talking to you and it was yeah, nearly two years to finally get together <laughs> yeah. and it was well worth the wait. <laughs> it really was. 
if people <laughs> want to follow along with you and you're studying, is there anywhere they can do that on social media or like follow your websites or anything like that where people can find you? Sure can. So from our Orca research, we've, we've built up an organisation called Project Orca and we do a lot of our research uh, through that. So Project Orca came about as more of a platform for communication and then as I saw the need for more research to be done, we've built it up. So we, we are on social media, not much at the moment because we've just been so busy out in the field. Uh, here in Australia, we're really lucky that we haven't been impacted too much and my two field sites are within my state. So we've been out in the field quite a lot. So we're a little bit quiet on social media. Please don't think that we're not there though. <laughs> and uh, yeah, social media and our website, projectorchid.com.au. Find me on Twitter. I talk about all things whales. Uh, yeah, we're, we're around. We're just, if we're not as active on social media, it's because we're really busy in the field or in the lab. So we're, we're still ticking away in the background. Perfect. That is fantastic. That will all be linked in the description as well as on, on all of our social medias. So make sure to check them out. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Water Women podcast. I love sharing these stories with you and I love that you love to listen. Make sure if you like the podcast, you're leaving a review and liking and subscribing to the podcast. It really helps us out. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at Water Women Pod. You can also check out more from us, including quizzes, blog posts, and shop our site at waterwomenpodcast.ca. Thanks again for listening, and until next week, stay salty.